So today we begin a five-week series that we're calling This Truth Changed My Life. I've got a couple of the Sundays. Kent and Joel have a couple. And then uh, my friend Dan Loggins from Calvary Baptist is going to uh, come here and preach for the first time. I'm, I'm excited for Dan to be here later in July. And so this, this five-week series, because there's a variety of, of uh, uh, communicators, we're not going to necessarily work through a specific book of the Bible. Instead, we're going to look at texts that each of us personally have been changed by and shaped by uh, in our lifetime. And so today, here in 1 John, is one specific passage that has shaped my way of life. 1 John is one of my favorite books of the Bible. If you're new to reading the Bible, 1 John would be a great one for you to begin in. So Sun Chaser Kids, or if you're in middle school or high school, you can play along. I have a question that I want you to respond to and just think about, and I'll ask you to respond to it here in a minute. When you blow it, like when, you, when something breaks because of you, or you were told to study for a test, you didn't study for the test, and you tanked it, or your parents ask you to do this, whatever this is, <clears throat> and you don't do it, or uh, ask you to live this way, do this, you say, I'm going to go another route, I'm going to do this, and it doesn't go well. When you blow it, do you tell your parents about it? Or do you try and hide, hoping they won't notice or find out? Do you tell or do you hide? I realize that's often not as clean as just simply one or the other. There There tends to be a combination of the two. But which one of the two are you prone to first? Tell them or hide from them. You have to choose one. So raise your hand if, if when you blow it, you are prone to tell your mom and dad soon afterwards. Raise your hand. Okay? Now raise your hand if when you blow it, things don't go right, you are first prone to hope they don't find out and hide. Raise your hand. This is a beautiful, honest, gracious group. This is good. Because there are very few hands up the first time. Very few hands. My hand is up on the second one as well. When I was growing up, I was not quick to tell my parents when I messed up. Sometimes I couldn't avoid telling them, for instance, when I'd kicked a hole in the drywall because I'd lost in around-the-world ping-pong. <laughs> I'm a wee bit competitive. I made some progress in that. Uh, but I couldn't hide the hole in the drywall, okay? Or when I was practicing my pitching against the, the garage door with a tennis ball and the pitch kind of got away from me and sailed through the glass window. First of all, I'm not very good at baseball. Secondly, why in the world was I practicing my terrible pitching <laughs> against a, gr- a garage door with four single-pane windows across the front? I clearly had more confidence in myself than I should have. There were other times when I thought I'd gotten away with it, though. My grandma lived with us growing up, and so uh, I took her car one time. She was gone. My parents were gone. Me and my friend Scott took her car on a country cruise. Don't do this, kids. Parents, I apologize. I'm telling stories like this. You can clean it up on the way home. (laughs) But when um, when I got home, put the car back in the garage, turned the radio back down, turned it to her station, and failed to scoot her seat back up because she's a tiny woman and I'm a large, tall, tall man. So I'd be a terrible criminal. 
I also had left a little rut in the, uh, in the yard because I'd gotten aggressive in my backing up, okay? And so then when, I'm, when my parents asked, knowing that the, the seat had been, not been scooted up, they, they knew what was going on. Parents tend to ask questions they already know the answer to. Heads up, kids, okay? And so my parents are asking me, uh, so why is the rut in the yard? Knowing full well, and you know who I blamed it on? The UPS man because that guy's aggressive in his driving. <laughs> I was hiding. At least I was trying to. And I could give you other examples. Story time is over. But that was the general bent of my, my childhood. I tried to keep the outward clean, and when something was wrong in my heart, or when I'd blown it, try to keep that hidden. And then, as a junior in high school, I got saved. I'd been hearing the good news of Jesus, and that he had come to die for a sin that we were born with, sin that I knew that at some point, at that point, that I couldn't heal it, I couldn't fix it, I couldn't cover it in my own strength. I'd tried for years, I'd failed for years, I was in need of a Savior, and Jesus was that sufficient Savior. He had come and proven himself faithful and good and shown of his great love through his birth, life, death, and resurrection. And in January 93, I transferred <clears throat> my trust away from self and onto him. Now, what occurred in my relationship with the Lord, though, is that I continued in that bent to sometimes hide when I was in sin. In how I'd sometimes related to my parents, I then projected that upon the Lord in my vertical relationship with him. And so when I would blow it, I'd try to keep that hidden. And I'd try to draw attention to areas where I was obeying the Lord. As if playing this game of, oh Lord, look at this, look at this in my life. And while keeping this hidden behind me, as if he can't see it. That's especially how I lived with those around me. Oh, look at this. But please don't notice this behind my back. It's nonsense. It's silly to try to hide from a triune, eternal God who is ever-present in this world and sees all. Psalm 139 tells us that. And yet that's what I did. And what created people have done since the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve rebel in the Garden, disregard the Lord's commands for them, and their sin gets exposed. And what do they do? They run and hide. And the Lord calls out to them, knowing exactly where they are, but they actually think they can hide. And by God's patient grace and the patient grace of those around me, including my own wife, especially over the years, I've grown in running to the Lord when I blow it, in walking in the light of His goodness and grace, rather than running from the Lord thinking, thinking I can hide, or that I have to hide, or that it's on me to clean up my sin. If it was on me, if it was on you to heal ourselves and cover our own sin, if that was actually possible, then Jesus didn't need to come. He didn't need to be born of a virgin. We, we didn't need our own Savior. But the entire Old Testament tells us over and over and over that created people are in desperate need of a sufficient Savior and His singular name is Jesus Christ. 1 John 5, or 1, 5 through chapter 2, verse 2 is a particular passage that the Lord has used in my life to remind me of three pieces of truth that when we rightly understand them motivate me 
to run to the Lord in my sin rather than hide in shame or puff up in self-righteousness. So this passage teaches us about who the Lord is. It teaches us about the darkness and sin that we are born with. It also shows us the goodness of the cross of Christ. If we're running from the Lord in our sin and suffering, then we're misunderstanding realities about who the Lord is, our sin, and the cross. And so I pray that as we look at this passage, that we might, we might individually and collectively be encouraged to walk in the light of the Lord, for He's too good, too loving, too transformative for us to run and hide from, especially when we've blown it. So we'll read the whole section here, and then we'll talk through it, looking at realities about who the Lord is, our sin, and the cross. So in the CSB translation, this is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you, God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in Him. If we say we have fellowship with Him, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And then chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. So let's look at who the Lord is first, because how you and I understand and view the Lord has implications in this life and especially long into eternity. Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. John is the one, is one who witnessed the birth, or I'm sorry, the, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's heard the message from Jesus, and now he proclaims it to us here in 1 John. And the message begins with God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. He says the same thing in two different ways to emphasize so that we don't miss it, so that we get a clear picture about who the Lord is. So often what we are prone to do as people is make God out in our image. So instead of allowing the word of God to define and describe the nature and character of him, we instead, for instance, allow our traditions or our own minds or what we hear from others or just what we want it to be to define our God. And notoriously, when we make the Lord out in our image, we, we imagine a God that appeals to us that and our desires and our wishes that always conforms to our thinking and living, but loved ones the Lord gets to define who the Lord is. The creation never and doesn't have the authority to define the creator. And he has revealed to us through his living and active words of the scriptures, this is who I am. And so this is one reason when we read our Bibles, one of the first questions we ask is, what does this teach me about the nature and character of the Lord? And in verse 5, we learn God is light and there's absolutely no darkness in him. God shines, illuminates, reveals, exposes. God is light. This refers to God's perfect, spotless, beautiful, awe-inspiring holiness, his perfection, 
that in him there is no darkness, no evil, no brokenness, no, no deficit. And we might say to ourselves, why does this even matter? That God is light and there's no, and absolutely no darkness in him. Well, because knowing that God is light, and there's no darkness in him, quickly tells us we're not like him. Because in me and in you is darkness. I don't care how good of a show you put on of, of this kind of game. In us, there's darkness. We're sinful. We're broken. There, there are dark corners, dark recesses in our hearts, and we'd all admit that. Even if you're here and you don't trust in Jesus yet, you'd be the first one to say, yeah, I've got some darkness. I've got some actions and thoughts I'd rather not put on a billboard outside of town. So how do we respond to the truth that God is light? What is our attitude toward the character of God? Do we try and hide and cover it up in shame or self-righteousness, or do we walk in the light and in doing so are healed and changed? Years ago, I was driving my car, and I, I thought the car was pretty clean on the outside. And then the next day, the morning light came in the, came in the window and exposed this window for how dirty it really was. So, so here's a picture of, of, uh, with no light behind it. It looks clean. I think I was picking up my, my kids from the middle school, if you're familiar with the town. And then here's the picture the next morning that I noticed the, the window wasn't nearly as clean and I had a helper clearly on the other side, on the passenger side, trying to clean that window one morning, just kind of smearing it around with their sleeve. Without the light, you don't see the dirt. With the light, you see dirt and the stain and the smearing of dust back and forth. And, and so it is with the holiness of our God. Without the holiness of God, we think, well, I'm clearly cleaner than that person over there. And the internet gives us ample opportunity to find that person, right? This is one reason why we love social media. Because you can just throw through there and be like, boom, I got my person for the day, cleaner than they are. But, but when held up to the perfect radiant light of God, we get exposed. And some of you have been trying to clean up the dirt, the sin on your own, and all it does is smear it around. Only Jesus is the one who forgives and cleanses us from our sin. If we are to pursue a posture of walking in the light, rather than running and hiding, we must first understand that He is light, and in Him there's absolutely no darkness at all. That truth then sheds light, if you will, on our hearts to reveal that we are not sinless or without darkness. So, so, so something has to be done with this sin problem in us. As one pastor has said, what we think about sin will have a direct correlation with how we deal with it in our lives. And in these next verses, John is helping us think rightly about our sin. So in these next verses, he has some if-then statements. He's developing contrast between a life in the dark and a life in the light. We'll look at verses 6 through 10. Three of the verses lay out this incorrect way to think about our sin. And then the other two verses reveal to us how we think rightly about, about our sin. So verses 6, 8, and 10 are the ones that reveal how we are not to think about our sin. So verse 6 says, If we say we have fellowship with Him, and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. 
So if we claim to know and love God, but continue to walk in darkness, meaning there's a continual pattern, a way of life in us that is pursuing sin, that is content with it remaining in our lives. If so, we are walking in darkness is how John says it. And we are denying that sin breaks or hinders our fellowship, our relationship with the Lord. We are saying, well, the Lord doesn't really care about this area of my heart or life. And as a result, we're justifying its ongoing rebellion and wandering in our lives. If we're believing that, John is saying that makes us a liar. We're not living out the truth that we supposedly claim. Verse 8 then, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. The idea in the original Greek is if we say we are not guilty of sin, if we are justifying our sin by looking horizontally and saying, well, the guy down the street is, is guiltier than I am, so that makes me innocent as a result, John is saying we're lying to ourselves. We're denying that our own sin makes us guilty. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and, the word is not, and his word is not in us. Here we're denying that sin is our personal problem. And in doing so, we're, we're calling God a liar. God says we've sinned and fallen short of the perfection of, of himself. And yet we deny that and say, well, but not me. I've done enough good. Or I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And with that attitude, we're calling God a liar. And saying his word has no authority or place in our lives. If we say these things, that sin doesn't hinder our fellowship with the Lord, or that we're not guilty of it, or that sin is not our personal problem, if we're believing these things about the area, the subject of sin, that then, John, then John is saying we are deceived and fooled and tricked. And some of you are there. And by definition, you're walking in darkness, and I pray that you, you repent and walk in the light of His goodness and grace. You turn today. And his light breaks through. The other two verses, 7 and 9, lay out for us the correct way to think about our sin. Verse 7, if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So when we choose to walk in the light of the Lord, allowing his holiness to expose us, his grace to transform us, if we do that, then what we learn here is not only do we have fellowship with the, with the Lord, but we have fellowship with brothers and sisters in the family of God. To walk in the light means we're not going to walk alone, but together. We're going to walk together with the Lord, with the Lord's people, brothers and sisters in the family of God. I could tell you from, from examples of my life, when I try to hide, it notoriously is isolating. When you walk in the light, it moves you toward fellowship with the family of God. Verse 9, then, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess our sins, when we move them into the light, when we receive, then we receive forgiveness. Some of your translations may say, purify us. When we confess our sins, when we repent, meaning we, we agree with how the Lord views sin. When we turn from it, 
Our hearts are cleansed. They're washed white as snow. We experience forgiveness. The slate is wiped clean. The window's actually clean. The condemnation is covered over. The shame of our sin is removed. And how can we be sure of that, though? Because, brothers and sisters, John tells us, the Lord is faithful. The Lord is righteous. He is true, unchanging. He is both the just and the justifier, the one who is the judge, and yet also makes the way possible for our sin to be taken away and covered over. If we understand sin rightly, meaning how the Lord views it, we will deal with it according to verse 9. We'll confess it, move it into the light. We won't pretend that we don't have darkness in our hearts, but we'll be authentic and humble in confession. We will run to the Lord, walking in His light. We will agree with the Lord that that sin was beaten on the cross, that it's already been nailed upon that cross, buried in a tomb. He bore the full weight of it. He said, it is finished. He bore the penalty of that sin, paid it in full, rose from the dead, broke the power of sin, which then leads then to this last truth that we must understand rightly. If we are to walk in the light and not be prone to hide, we must think rightly about the cross of Christ. We must be reminded of what the Lord has done and the goodness, the goodness of the gospel. So the, verse, the first two verses in chapter 2 again, My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. John is not adopting here the position that he criticized in verses 8 and 10. The false idea that if you begin to follow God, that you and I will no longer sin, or that you and I will no longer fall short of perfection. John is not saying that we attain perfection this side of heaven. He is saying we'll make progress, we'll make progress this side of heaven by the grace of God, the power of the Spirit, the power of the Word, because we've been given a new identity, new hearts, a new spirit put within us. An identity not in not in our old sin nature, but but in the new creation we are in Christ. We are covered in his righteousness now, so. We walk in a new way because the core of who we are has changed. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. John is reminding us here of the provision that God has made for us so that when we sin, we have the cross. We can look to the cross and both be humbled about our sin, but also be reminded of the grace of God. And in Christ that we are forgiven and cleansed and set free and that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because that condemnation Jesus bore upon that cross. Jesus is our advocate speaking up on our behalf in the presence of the Father when we sin and together they agree about who we are now in Christ. When the devil brings accusations, you haven't changed. Well, you'll always be who you've always been. Or you'll always be so-and-so's son or daughter. When the devil brings these accusations of, oh, you're walking through suffering because he's judging you for your sin. 
or he's condemning you for your sin. When the devil brings these whispers of lies, Jesus, the one who lived righteously and perfectly, stands in our defense. The righteous for the unrighteous. The perfect for the imperfect. The sinless for the sinful. The beautiful for the broken. Verse 2 says, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. We are justified or made right before a holy God because Jesus' sinless life in His substitutionary death. He took our place. He died the death that we should have died. He bore our sin upon that cross. Jesus absorbs the wrath of God on that cross and by His wounds, we are told in Scripture that we are healed. By His wounds, we are healed. John is saying that Jesus' blood and cross is the only way to address the problem of sin for all people, all time, everywhere. And Jesus' invitation to follow Him, to receive Him into your life as Lord is for all people. No matter your background, no matter your baggage, no matter how long you've played this game, all are invited. All are welcome to put their faith in the One who is the way, the truth, and the life. In Jesus alone, we are saved and we are set free, not so that we can return to our flesh, but so that we can love the Lord, serve the Lord, and love those around us. We're going to move into a time of communion together. And if, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're welcome to take communion. The Bible says only believers in Jesus Christ should take communion. And parents, you are welcome if you're if you know your kids know the gospel, if they're, if they're trusting in Christ, you're welcome to walk with them in this moment and take communion alongside them. 1 John 4.10 says, Love consists in this, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So as we take the Lord's Supper, as we hold the symbols of bread and juice, the symbols that remind us of broken body, shed blood, we are reminded of that truth that John tells us in that passage that God is light and there's absolutely no darkness in Him. And in us there is darkness and sin that we can't deny. And the Lord has made a way. Loved ones, He's made a way. He's made a way where the dirty can be made clean and purified and cleansed not by our effort, but by trusting in His sufficient work and His effort and His birth and His life and His death, His resurrection. And when we sin, including after trusting in Jesus for our salvation, we run back to our advocate. We don't run and hide, but we confess. We walk in the light of the faithful and righteous One who saves us and changes us and is preparing a place for us in heaven. He's good. His love is great. And let us walk in His light. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, after supper, He took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me.
drink the juice. Lord, we are so grateful that, that you are light and in you there's absolutely no darkness at all. We cannot fully wrap our human minds around that truth because as we look at our own hearts, our own lives, we recognize that in us there is darkness, there is a flesh that is still wanting to rear its head, there is still a bent in us to live for live for the moment, live for self, live for sin. And God, thank you for the goodness of the gospel that we can, in our, in our wandering, in our strain, that we can run to you like the son that ran home in Luke 15. I pray that we would have that type of posture in our lives, knowing that you rejoice at our repentance and you welcome us. You are faithful and righteous you are true and unchanging. And in your light is where we are healed and set free and transformed. God, be glorified through our way of life. May we walk as sons and daughters of light. Because that's who you've made us in Christ. You've given us a new creation identity. Old is gone, new has come. And so I pray that as we walk and live in a new way, that you would get the glory, those around us would, would be witness to, and that you would increase our joy in you. I thank you for the freedom that we have in you to walk in the light of your grace and truth. We pray this in your name. Amen. Paul writes this in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 8, For you were once in darkness... But now, your light in the Lord, live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. May we live as children of light this week, because the core of who we are has been changed. Thanks be to the sufficient work of Jesus Christ. May we live as children of light, especially in starting with those closest to us that we might dwell with or work with or serve alongside.